given that there's an immunization flavor to the regional director's statement today, uh, we'll, be having, we'll be joined by Dr. Siddhartha Datta, who's the regional advisor here in the WHO Regional Office for Europe on immunization and vaccine-preventable diseases. Also, we are very honored to have uh, Professor Adam Finn from uh, Bristol University from the Children's Vaccine Center. Uh, Adam is uh, our European Technical Advisory Group of Experts uh, Chair so that's our most senior independent scientific and technical advisory body to the regional director here at the regional office. Professor Adam Finn, thank you very much for joining us today. Also available to take your questions after the statement. So I would urge you to use this opportunity of having these two uh, leaders in immunization with us today to ask questions regarding vaccination or vaccine development. So thank you very much for your questions. We have had, we've received questions in advance, which I'll get through in a moment. Uh, please do raise your hand if you have questions for us as we're running this uh, live. Uh, it only remains for me to thank the panelists for joining us and to pass the floor to our regional director, Dr. Hans Kluger. Thank you for joining us. Today, it is three months since WHO's Director General declared a public health emergency of international concern over the outbreak of novel coronavirus. Now, as in past weeks, the situation in the European region remains serious. In broad terms, while plateauing in Western Europe, the gradient of the AP curve steepens as we look east. Across the region, cumulative cases have increased by 15% in the past seven days and now stand at 1,408,266 cases. Deaths have risen by 18% over the same period. Tragically, 129,344 people in Europe have now lost their lives. My thoughts and deepest sympathy are with the families and loved ones of those we have lost. Today, the European region accounts for 46% of cases and 63% of deaths globally. The region remains very much in the grip of this pandemic. Spain, followed by Italy, the United Kingdom, Germany and France still have the highest number of cases. But following social and physical distancing measures introduced some weeks ago, we are now seeing evidence of a plateau or reduction in the number of new cases. We must monitor this positive development very closely. In the eastern part of the region, Belarus, the Russian Federation, Kazakhstan and Ukraine, cases have increased in the past week while in Turkey, the situation is stabilizing. Here, we must maintain the full arsenal of measures we have to suppress transmission. As these figures demonstrate, the situation across our region is not uniform. Every country is mapping out its route to a new normal, and every country is at a different place. Of the 44 countries in the European region, that have implemented partial or full domestic movement restrictions, 21 countries have started easing some of these measures to different degrees, and a further 11 are planning to do so in the coming days. As I have said before, this virus is unforgiving. We must remain vigilant, persevere and be patient, ready to ramp up measures as and when needed.
Last week, we issued essential guidance for countries considering and planning COVID-19 transition. In that guidance, we emphasized that health systems must have the capacity to operate along a dual track, continuing to deliver regular health services, whilst responding aggressively to COVID-19. It is clear that both health service and society-wide measures put in place to address COVID-19 have had an effect both on the delivery of other health services and on people accessing such services. Other vital health services have been crowded out. I have two key messages for you today. One, to the governments and health authorities. I urge you to find ways to reintroduce other health services safely and quickly once community transmission is under control. Two, to the people and communities, ensure your child is vaccinated. If you have concerns about accessing these services, there are ways to do so safely. So let's look more closely at immunization. Last week, we marked European Immunization Week. Immunization is one of the most effective health tools we have, protecting children from many diseases that would otherwise be debilitating or deadly. Now, as scientists work together across the globe to develop a safe, effective vaccine against COVID-19, we are once again reminded of how precious vaccines are. I am very happy to be joined by our chair of the European Technical Advisory Group of Experts, Professor Ade Finn, today on this panel. Since 2017, the European region has been experiencing a resurgence of measles. In 2018, over 500,000 children missed their first dose of measles vaccination. In 2019, over 100,000 people across all age groups were infected as a result of this and long-standing immunization gaps. Today, measles continues to spread in some parts of the region, affecting over 6,000 people in the first two months of this year. We cannot allow this situation to worsen. We should do everything within our powers to prevent children becoming victims of this pandemic due to their vulnerability of vaccine-preventable diseases such as measles, diphtheria, mumps and rubella. COVID-19 cannot be permitted to claim this collateral damage. We are concerned that countries may have seen interruptions in routine immunization services, including among vulnerable groups, and the interruption of measles outbreak response activities. To governments and health authorities, I say this, immunization services are essential. If they have been interrupted, catch-up measures must be taken as quickly as possible. We cannot allow the impact of COVID-19 to be amplified by neglecting other vital health protection measures. I do appreciate that during COVID-19, countries have found new and innovative ways of reaching children using temporary vaccination points. Health professionals delivering immunization programs across the region are working hard to ensure 
that as many children as possible have access to vaccine services while preventing COVID-19 infection. Some health services have introduced parallel tracks with regular checkups and vaccinations for babies staggered to ensure limited indoor waiting times and kept fully separate from curative care for others. These efforts are very welcome and I also commend the determination of parents and caregivers to keep their children safe. I urge countries to continue prioritizing immunization, innovating services, communicating to parents and meticulously tracking every single missed vaccination. Catch up as quickly as possible where needed. To parents, make no mistake, the safest choice also during this pandemic is to vaccinate your children. Use this opportunity to protect them and others from diseases that we can prevent. This leads me to my final message for all of us. COVID-19 is not going away anytime soon. Dual track health systems can offer the flexibility and resilience needed to manage repeated waves of coronavirus infections and the increasing demand for other services. The new COVID-19 Health System Response Monitor, launched by the WHO Regional Office, the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies, together with the European Commission, is collating evidence of how health systems are responding to the pandemic. Please use that valuable resource. We must be alert and open to new ways of delivering and receiving health care. We cannot risk seeing the tragedy of COVID-19 mirrored in a second catastrophe of ill health from other causes. In short, to authorities, maintain a dual-track health service. To the public, keep using immunization services where available. By doing so, we leave no one behind. Thank you. Thank you very much, Regional Director. Right, now we're going to come to some of the questions that we've received in advance first, just a couple up front, and then I'll take those from the reporters that have joined us, the media that's joined us online. So the first question, I think, uh, so we have Dorit Nitsan, uh, the Acting Regional Emergency Director uh, for the European WHO, European Regional Office on the line. We have Professor Adam Finn, and we have Siddhartha Datta joining us um, on, on this panel. So thank you all very much much for joining us. So the first question I think is to you, Dorit, if I may, from Alice Zapotoki from uh, the Czech news agency CTK. And it, re and it reads, is there any recommendation for numbers of care unit beds or mechanical ventilators per 100,000 people? Alice has got a second question, but I'll come to that after that uh, afterwards. Thank you, Dorit. Thank you very much. And indeed, uh, WHO uh, published at early stage uh, the package of services and what is needed per uh, country, per uh, population. It's all published, and I will be ready to share with you after this the link. Uh, it is available with concrete uh, numbers of uh, tools, medicines, beds, vents, as other things that are needed to be in place, including surge capacity calculator for the uh, healthcare workers. So all of it are included in a package. Thank you. Okay, 
Thank you, Dorrit. Um, uh, we have uh, Alice also asking a question regarding masks. Is it, is it real ben really beneficial to wear face masks or other cloth, cloth face coverings on the streets? Is the general public wearing masks, like in the Czech Republic, safe uh, during the summer months? I understand wearing a mask in public transportation or in grocery stores. I don't quite get the last piece of that, but I think you get the general gist of this. Dorit, please. We don't hear you, I'm afraid, Dorit. Oh, is it okay? Yes, I, I, we continue to recommend that healthcare workers and those that are caring for the sick and those that are sick will use the masks. If the public, if there are enough masks in the public, it can be used, but we are warning that this uh, would require the people, the population to really understand that the masks are not standalone, that have to come with a full package of hygiene, of keeping distance from other people and follow all the recommendations that are coming from the authorities. So the masks are not standalone. They are not helpful as we know, but we uh, say that if you do have enough, go ahead, use it in the full package of care. Over to you, Rob. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dorit. Okay, uh, we had a, a few questions regarding the uh, missions to Turkmenistan and Tajikistan that the regional director announced last week. So the first of these is from Kirill Krivishev from Commerçant newspaper in Russia. Um, and it reads, when the WHO missions are going to visit, to when are the WHO missions going to visit Tajikistan and Turkmenistan? Are there the detailed plans of this trips, these trips? Are the WHO experts going to verify the various media reports about suspicious cases of pneumonia deaths and strange burials, burial ceremonies? I'll pass that over to you, if I may, Hans, and then maybe to Dorit thereafter. Thank you. So the missions to Tajikistan and also Turkmenistan fit into the work and the mandate that WHO is doing. We have long-standing relationship with both countries. In fact, as of today, about 60 country missions to assess with the national authorities have been conducted to assess situation and work with the national authorities. We got a green light from the ministers of foreign affairs of Tajikistan and Turkmenistan to our missions to uh, uh, fly in, and I would like to express very sincere appreciation to the national authorities of the countries, but also to the United Nations sister agencies on the ground with whom we are collaborating very closely. So the main aim is to work with the national authorities to strengthen the preparedness of the country, but not only for a COVID-19 outbreak, but in general as part of our work for any emergency in the future and strengthen in that sense the uh, national and subnational capacities. Thanks very much. And Dorit, would you like to compliment? Uh, thank you. Um, the mission to Tajikistan, uh, just to add to our regional director, the mission to Tajikistan uh, is leaving tonight to uh, uh, try to go on a flight to Dushanbe. This is not going to be easy. There are border closures. There are demands to be checked and uh, in either you know, stop on the way. It's not easy at all. We have many challenges and we will hopefully get there. 
So when we get there, we will work as we heard from our regional directors, shoulder to shoulder with the authorities to prepare and respond if needed. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Hans. Thanks, Dorit. Uh, I have a related question here, and I think it's back to the two of you. Uh, from Joanna Lillis, who is uh, a reporter with The Economist based in Kazakhstan. And the question reads, in media interviews, the WHO mission head in Tajikistan has endorsed the coronavirus testing system, excuse me, has endorsed the coronavirus testing system in Tajikistan as corresponding to the requirements of international standards. On what does the WHO base its assessment of testing systems in Tajikistan and also Turkmenistan? Does WHO have sufficient access to information to be assured that coronavirus cases are not being concealed in these two countries which are claiming no cases? So I think to Hans again first, if I may, and then to Dorit. I will take the last part of the question and then the, on the details of the testing strategy pass to Dr. Dorit Nitsan. As I was mentioning, we had a very productive uh, conversations with both the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the ambassadors in Geneva and the Ministries of Health. We made a joint plan, including uh, visits to facilities, and we're going to walk in the usual spirit of uh, trust and collaboration to assess the readiness and the preparedness on the ground to a uh, future outbreak, whether it be from COVID-19 or other ones, within the broader context of strengthening public health services and health systems towards universal health coverage. Dorit, please. Yes, uh, to add uh, just a, a few uh, findings that we have, just to make, to make sure that it is understood that we are really working closely with the authorities through our experts in the countries, but also from uh, the regional office. So what, uh, for example, we know that uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan on the, has, now, has now 22 hospitals that are dedicated and prepared to receive patients and they have already dedicated 3,000 beds uh, in place. This is their report. We also know that they have the 16 locations for quarantine and uh, they are quarantining uh, as we speak. And as uh, in regards to the tests, 26 samples uh, were sent to international reference laboratories in Russia and UK. And these are our laboratories that are verified and have tested negative. So we can confirm that the tests that were uh, sent to our reference laboratories were found negative. Nevertheless, we are ready to work and we are expected for the first case when it comes. Over to you, Rob. Thank you very much, Dorit. So I'm going to go to some of the uh, journalists that have joined us online. Uh, the first, uh, Denise Rowland from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Denise, can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? Great, we can. Thank you very much, Denise. Fantastic. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, so I was interested to hear from Dorit earlier that, that who has us 
um, publish a package of services and what's needed per country per, per pop head population. I'm interested to know whether the WHO's view on ventilator capacity has changed throughout the course of the pandemic, um, because something I'm hearing is that, um, you know, doctors are reporting that they're finding less invasive measures like CPAP to be much more effective than they predicted in managing uh, severe COVID patients. Um, and I wondered, number one, has WHO shifted in its recommendation of ventilator capacity? Uh, and number two, does WHO have a recommendation on, on the use of ventilators and, and you know when it's appropriate to put patients on them? Thank you. Dorit, please. Yes, thank you. This is a very important question. So we have to differentiate between the package of, of uh, tools and services that needs to be in a country and the clinical management of cases. And the clinical management, we do uh, change and update it according to the uh, findings. And we have a very good clinical management team and network that gathers this and updates the information. We do recommend to look patient by patient, assess and they decide on the clinical guidance that they need. And indeed, there are some reports that CPAP, ECMO and other tools are sometimes better and we are looking into it and update it as we go. We have also peered countries with countries, those that are more experienced with those that are just being exposed to the patients so that we will guide each other as case to case. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dorit. Uh, a question uh, here for Adam Finn from Robin Cooper in, in, in London in the UK. Um, uh, Adam, um, the question reads: uh, Can you tell who are the tell us who the, are the front runners in the COVID nineteen vaccines development, and how far are we from a COVID nineteen vaccine really? When do you predict that the first COVID nineteen vaccine will be available? So, Professor Adam Finn, over to you. Yes, I, I think it's important to recognise that there are many uh, steps along the way to developing an effective vaccine. <clears throat> As in a horse race, the first horse out of the box is not necessarily the horse that finishes the race. And here, we're not so much interested in the winner as in how many horses we can get to that finishing line. Um, vaccines that are already in trials might be the ones that are attracting most attention and most optimism. But we have to bear in mind that along the way, they may prove not to be safe, they may prove not to be effective. And perhaps most importantly of all, they may not prove to be the ones that can most easily be manufactured at scale and distributed effectively to uh, all the different countries of the region and indeed the world. So I think naming uh, particular vaccines as front runners now is, is potentially misleading. It's simply telling you that they are in the early stages of this process. And I think it's key that WHO keeps an eye on the large range of vaccines being developed, and there are many, uh, that, are, that vary in their design and which ultimately may prove to be the most useful. I would be hesitant to predict at this point as to which of the first, uh, which will be the first vaccine to be in use for the reasons that I've just explained. Thank you very much, Professor Finn. And, and we've got a related immunisation uh, question that I think we can send over to uh, uh, Dr. Siddhartha Datta, who's the programme manager here on vaccine preventable diseases and immunisation at the WHO regional office. 
Um, and it reads, people have been told to stay at home, work and school to prevent them from catching or spreading COVID-19. Shouldn't parents then wait to vaccinate their children against diseases that are not currently spreading in their country? Siddhartha. Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much. Thanks for that question. The answer actually is no, we should not wait uh, to vaccinate our children. As we have heard from our regional director, immunization has never been more important, actually. Health authorities are doing everything they can and the innovative measures that we have heard from our regional director to make sure that the children can still be vaccinated while keeping them safe from COVID-19 infection. Just in 2019, uh, there had been 1,000 cases of measles, including 65 deaths in our region. Some countries are still reporting cases in 2020. So measles and other infectious diseases are very much here amongst us. We cannot allow the COVID-19 to open the door for other dreadful diseases. The time to prevent them is now, and as there's a good reason for doing this. Every dose that is missed will add a challenge to the health system, which is already stretched by this COVID-19 response. And somehow we then have to again catch up them later. And there's an added risk for each of the child uh, who is missing a dose or for the community in a bigger sense. We do have safe and effective vaccines and we have to reap the benefits of these vaccines more so now during this COVID-19 times. Thank you. Thank you very much, Siddhartha. Right, um, next we go over to Patricia Cavallo from Publico. Uh, Patricia, are you online with us? Uh, can you hear me? We can, please go ahead with your question. Hello. Good morning. Uh, I have a question regarding the situation in Portugal, because we are one of the countries that are preparing to open our businesses and some schools uh, next week. Um, I, I would like to, to ask uh, the director, um, because of the, the reference um, indicator of the R0, we haven't been really under the R0 uh, indicator. We're just a little bit above it. And considering this indicator, I would like to know your opinion on our decision to start um, uh, opening the country and, and relaxing a little bit the confinement measures. Thank you. Great. I'm going to pass that over to our regional emergencies director, Dorit Nitsan. Uh, Dorit, uh, could you respond, yes. please? Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. We are working closely with the Portuguese authorities and following the uh, different uh, indicators. The decision to move forward slowly and to try to um, uh, be able to maintain the lower rate of the disease uh, is it can be justified by the current findings and we are following closely with them. The main thing that we are asking countries is to fulfill the six criteria that have to go hand in hand when they do it, among them is their public health ability to ensure that all cases, including the mild cases, or specifically the mild cases, will be isolated, will be tested, they will be also, the contact will be traced and quarantined. And since this is in place, we are following it closely and ready to go back and forth into the new normal, also in Portugal. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dorit. 
And next, I'm going to go to Naomi Kresje from uh, Bloomberg News. Naomi. Um, we saw some conflicting data emerge on remdesivir yesterday, and I wondered if you could just give us a sense of, of your level of confidence in this uh, drug as a potential coronavirus treatment now. Um, would uh, WHO um, think it was good to, to start using the drug or to have like a, a conditional preliminary approval um, based on the, the set of data that we have today? Thank you, Naomi, for that question. Over to you, Dorit. Remdesivir is one of the drugs that are on the solidarity trial of WHO. For this, we recommend to use it as a, a, in the scope of the trial, and that means double-blinded and randomized uh, and protocol. Only in a few months, when we will be able to know more we will be able to share with you more information. Right now, it is experimental drug that is including in the solidarity trial. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, the next question is for you, Regional Director. It's from Bin Chen, the European uh, correspondent of Shanghai Media, uh, based in Berlin. And it reads, uh, almost 50% of the global burden of COVID-19 cases are in the European region. While Europe has, in fact, better health systems than most of the other parts of the world, what lessons did Europe learn through the outbreak in terms of public health emergencies? And I'll give that to the regional director, please. Right. One of the things we saw very clearly in different countries is the speed with which even the best health systems indeed can be overwhelmed and devastated. So the biggest lesson overall at this stage would be that health really deserves to be at the top of the political agenda. For decades we have been advocating that health is a driver of the economy. What we see now is that without health there is no economy. Without health there is no national security. So once that we get out of the pandemic through united efforts, this is a lesson never to be forgotten. The other point is about solidarity, which is now being strengthened. And in the beginning, Countries were struggling a lot with, uh, with that one, wanting to be full of solidarity, but having really to scramble in certain instances to get the national response together. But now I believe, and what I see definitely in the WHO European region, is that every country understands that even if a particular country has its own house in order, it necessitates all other countries to be united and together. We're only as strong as the weakest part in our chain. The other one is that we will have to be ready also in the future to make decisions in the absence of complete evidence. And in terms of new and emerging infections like the coronavirus, it is very uncomfortable but necessary to take decisions fast. And in that sense, this continuous exchange of everyday learning, for example, now on the transition is key. And WHO, I can assure everyone, is going to continue to play its role 24-7 to be that convener, west, central, eastern part of the region and also with other regions in the world. 
Thank you very much, Regional Director. Next, we're going to go to Kostas Stavanis from ERT Hellenic Public Television. Kostas, welcome back. You with us? Mm -hmm. Yes, we can. Please go ahead, Kostas. Okay. Um, uh, Dr. Kluge, it's known that uh, some European countries are reopening schools. Scientists have different estimates for this. So I would like your appreciation. What do you think? Is it too early to do so in Europe based on the epidemiological data and what it means for the health systems? How dangerous or not can be the reopening of schools for the spread of the coronavirus as is said that many infected children remain asymptomatic and carry a large viral load for a long time? Thank you. Thanks very much, Kostas. We'll go to the regional director and then I'll pass over to Adam Finn maybe to reflect on this from the British uh, and the UK's uh, decision-making around it, the school's situation. Thank you very much, Kostas. A very debated question indeed. So I was mentioning that about half of the countries which were uh, implementing quite restrictive measures or lockdowns are now easing up. And we always have told that this is a balance between protecting the health of the population, social and economic consequences and ultimately also the well-being of the uh, population. So there is no on and off situation. This is a kind of a cycling back and forward, so constantly monitoring of the situation, including and not at least in schools where in many countries are being opened, at least starting for the youngest, is something very, very important and to learn as we are going. We have developed a framework, policy considerations, for this question, we have about six criteria to put in place, including on putting preventive measures in place in the schools, in the workplace, in facilities with vulnerable people, and we definitely urge the authorities to follow those uh, criteria. And Adam, I might ask you to just reflect on this from the UK's uh, perspective, because I know you've been uh, in discussions regarding to uh, with infectivity amongst children uh, in schools. Uh, Adam, please. Yes, certainly. Um, I, I think uh, uh, Dr. Kruger's um, remarks about the need to make difficult decisions in the context of limited evidence is very pertinent here. And, and most countries that have closed schools had to do this really without clear evidence as to the importance of children in the transmission of this infection. Uh, now we're faced with the difficult decision as to whether to reverse that in some careful way. Um, and all we really know at this point is that with a small number of exceptions, uh, children are mildly affected by this infection. What is much less clear is how often they get infection and how infectious they are to each other and to uh, other people in their families. So uh, it's clear that a cautious approach needs to be taken, while at the same time uh, efforts being made to enable children to continue with their education. There is limited evidence that I've seen from several countries, including the Netherlands and Australia, that suggests that maybe children not only are mildly affected, but are less frequently infected than adults. But I have to say that that evidence is still very preliminary and not very convincing. So we need to be cautious about this, uh, and we need to get more evidence, in particular to do seroprevalence studies uh, looking for the proportion of children of different ages who have already been infected. And as that evidence accumulates, the uh, policy decisions will get easier to make. Thank you very much, Regional Director, and thank you, Adam, to those responses to Costas. Next, we're going to go over to Zuza Yakima, 
at the uh, Luxembourg Times. Zuza. Good morning. Good morning. Um, a question regarding testing um, the populations. Uh, Luxembourg has uh, has already tested seven percent of its population, and uh, the government announced that by 19th of March they plan to have a capacity to pretty much because of the size of the of the country uh, to be able to test everyone uh, over three weeks. I was wondering uh, how often would you recommend in such a case for the test to be for the people to be retested because it's one thing to to test and say some well I don't know whatever numbers of people is not sick but then to be sure that we are not getting new cases so how often such tests after an entire population is tested should be um, retested thank you Great. thanks very much Susa uh, pass that on to Dorit Nitsan please Dorit Thank you, Susa. Uh, we recommend to test uh, the mild cases and their contacts. And for that, this is actually targeting those that might have the, the risk to disseminate and to be the driver of the pandemic in the communities. Some uh, regions or localities decided to do more overall testing and that's okay, but still we need to focus on those that uh, are at risk in order to ensure that the drivers are there. And so whatever, if you, they are doing it as a backup uh, system, it's okay, still needs to look at the mild and the more uh, severe cases. Nevertheless, some countries are using uh, immunological or serological testing. This is for research purposes and they are testing communities and they wanting to know if they developed and how many people were uh, exposed. This is not yet a tool that we can say that is working perfectly well, but we see that it is being used just as a background, but it does not replace the, the uh, PCR, the viral RNA testing as such. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dorit. And I can see Adam's nodding away there on the Zoom. So I'm wondering whether, Adam, can I pass you the floor, if you'd like the floor? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but I think the point's been well made that there are two distinct kinds of testing. It's really important for people to understand that. There's the PCR test for the virus, and then there are tests that can be done on blood or on saliva looking for antibodies. And they, they, have, they serve different roles. And as, as has correctly been said, at the moment, the most well-established and vitally important test is testing for the virus. Uh, as time goes forward and the tests improve, we'll see an increasing role for uh, understanding what's going on in the population by looking for antibodies. Great. Thanks very much. So, uh, thanks, and thanks for the question, Zuza. We'll move next to uh, Jamie Keaton, Associated Press. Jamie, welcome back. Hi, thank you. Great. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I just wanted to pick up a little bit on, on Adam's question and um, the question that Adam responded to earlier um, about uh, the children. Uh, there's been a study here in Switzerland talking about how grandparents um, could be okay in hugging their own grandchildren, um, children under 10. I'm just wondering, um, from your point of view, is it safe for grandparents to hug their young grandchildren? Thanks, Jamie. Adam, over to you. Uh, so I've, I've seen the Swiss uh, report uh, reported in the media. I've yet to uh, gain access to it, so I'm not completely clear of the details of the evidence upon which that recommendation was allegedly made. But I understand it to relate to the expression of the 
uh, angiotensin converting enzyme 2, which is the cellular receptor uh, for the virus. Um, now, I think we should emphasize that children can get this infection. Uh, their cells do express this receptor, uh, possibly at slightly lower levels in the respiratory tract, but also in the uh, gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and so any absolute statement that children uh, are guaranteed to be uninfectious to adults, I think is probably an oversimplification of the evidence as we currently understand it. And I would urge some caution uh, in terms of the interpretation of that single study, although I acknowledge I've not yet seen the evidence that was presented. Thanks very much, Adam, and thanks for the question, Jamie. We're going to go uh, to a question now that came in from the Cyprus News Agency, from Evie Midsid. Yep. Sorry, can I just, is WHO studying that question about, I mean, about whether or not um, contact between grandparents and their grandchildren is safe? Dorit, did you get that question? Sorry, I was... I, I did. Yeah. We, we have not uh, looked at the grandparents' children, uh, but we are looking at the immunity of children and uh, their susceptibility as well as uh, their role in the transmission in the community. Yes, we do. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dorit. Okay, to Evi uh, Mitsudu Phillips, who's a journalist with the Cyprus News Agency. Forgive my pronunciation, uh, Evi. Um, what is your view of the measures taken by Cyprus to contain the COVID-19 outbreak? Cyprus has launched a mass testing drive for 20,000 professionals from the public and private sector. How helpful is this in identifying the spread of the disease in the community? Uh, Hans, can I uh, pass that to you? Since the very beginning, we have been in close touch with the Minister of Health, Konstantinos Yano, and uh, Cyprus has been following the WHO recommendations. Now it is indeed gradually loosening up. So we, first and foremost, I would like to, con, uh, let's say, echo what the Minister uh, uh, Jano was telling that we have to live with the coronavirus for a while. This is a, a very wise statement, which means that the easing of restrictions has to go gradually, like Cyprus is taking forward. I also acknowledge that the tourism sector for Cyprus and for many other countries in Europe is very, very important. And again, like I was mentioning, it's a balanced approach between protecting the health of the population, social and economic considerations, and the well-being. Then uh, also I would like to, uh, let's say, support what President Anastasiades was telling, that it's important to adhere to the national guidelines. Now, if it comes to the testing, Dr. Dorat Nitsen was uh, telling this already. Priority goes to the symptomatic cases. If there is the capacity to go beyond, then definitely we um, applaud this and uh, uh, appreciate, because ultimately it's not about stopping the chain of transmission, but cutting the chain of the transmission, particularly in the absence of vaccine or a treatment. The important thing here is that it's not about testing only. What we need is a comprehensive approach of the containment, the mitigation, and giving the society really ownership and a voice. Thank you very much, Regional Director. The next question, um, I'm going to go over to Ricardo Bagnato Bulgarelli from the Swiss public television outlet RSI. Ricardo, can you hear us? 
All right, can you hear me there? We can hear you just about a little bit louder, please. Okay, a little bit louder. The question is very short. Uh, in uh, Geneva, um, yesterday, the uh, hospital reported three cases of Kawasaki syndrome. Uh, we've been talking about this syndrome, this uh, disease in kids in France, Spain, Italy, Great Britain, and now in Switzerland. How and what do you know about that? And what's the link with the COVID-19? Okay, for this question, uh, I appreciate that we've had two questions in the southwest of England. So, Adam, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go over to you um, uh, to, to respond to this. Adam, please. Yes, uh, we are aware of this, um, this new, uh, newly described syndrome from a number of countries, as you mentioned, in Europe. <clears throat> and potentially uh, a, a small number of cases in North America. Um, this, uh, this is, a, at this point, fairly poorly defined syndrome, and we are urgently conducting a surveillance study in the United Kingdom to get a clearer understanding of what's going on. We're aware of uh, just around 20 cases that have occurred in London. We've seen a handful in my part of the country in the southwest, and we're hearing about other cases from other centers. Uh, actually, only around half of these children are testing positive for coronavirus. So at this point, we're not completely clear as to the causal relationship, although there is speculation that this may be um, a, a late complication of the infection uh, with a hyperinflammatory syndrome of some kind. But all of this is speculation at this point. The size and exact nature of this problem is only just beginning to emerge. And I think we will learn a lot more within the coming days and weeks. Thank you very much, Adam. So next question from is from uh, Gunilla von Hall, Svenska Daubler. Uh, Gunilla? Uh, yes, can you hear me? We can. Please go ahead, Gunilla. Um, my question is on the report on children who have had serious inflammatory problems that could be linked to the coronavirus. What do you know about this connection? Uh, how serious is it? And what is your message to a lot of worried parents now? Thank you. Okay, Dorit, I'm going to go to you and then to Adam. Yeah, I, I think that uh, Adam has just uh, replied. We, we know as WJO, we got the report through our IHR focal point in the UK and other countries. And we are looking together with our clinical network and the pediatricians uh, in, in the European region and in the, the Americas for the possible connection or correlation or some kind of association between that hyperinflammatory syndrome and the, and the COVID-19. We are not sure yet if it could be something uh, that was in the middle, like something else, or if it is, as Adam just said, a late response to COVID-19 in infection. We will come out with the results and the news as soon as we have them. Thank you. And over to Adam, please. Adam? To the previous one, uh, uh, and I don't think I can say more um, apologies, I think I was on mute. Uh, I, I don't think I've got very much more to add to my answer to the previous question. It's a very uncertain situation. It's clearly very worrying for, uh, for parents, uh, as, as it is for us pediatricians. 
uh, and we need to get more information on this urgently and we'll of course uh, uh, share that information as soon as it becomes available. Great stuff, thanks very much. So we go over to Anna Pinto from Foliard Sao Paulo. Anna Pinto, Anna, are you with us? Hi, can you hear me? Hey, we can, thanks very much. Okay, thanks for getting my question. Uh, now that several countries have started to ease their lockdowns, I'd like to know how the WHO is monitoring COVID in those countries and whether it is already possible to know the impact so far of the easing of restrictions on the pandemic in those countries. Great, thanks very much, Anna. I'm gonna pass that to our regional director, Dr. Hans Kluge. Thank you, Anna. The health system response monitor is a monitoring system which is at our website together with the European Commission, the European Observatory. It's documenting the measures being put in place for the Corona-19 response and now being elaborated with the measures on the transition. In addition, we are in daily contact with what we call the IHR focal points, international health regulations, who are reporting to the WHO. But this is far too early to give any, let's say, concluding uh, comments. In fact, we do plan a meeting with the Minister of Health next week, which for many countries will then be about two weeks to share, let's say, the early experiences. Hence the importance for the real-time sharing of experiences and uh, what's happening. Thanks very much, Regional Director. Uh, we have a question, uh, this one's for you, Dorit, from Akuneta Anderson, a reporter at B News Daily in the United States. It reads, how does WHO and CDC intend to ensure and monitor adherence of the minimum recommended standards for the psychological well-being of healthcare workers? This is something that's come up repeatedly and understandably over previous weeks. Over to you, please, Dorit. Yes, thank you. We are in the European region uh, uh, really put emphasis on mental health and well-being and the healthcare workers are at the core of our actions. We have a subgroup in our incident management team that is monitoring and assisting countries to tackle also this the uh, health being health well-being and including mental health of the healthcare workers. We are also collaborating with our partners, with the European Center for Disease Control, with the US Center for Disease Controls, as well as clinical networks of experts uh, and researchers that uh, help us to get uh, into the right uh, core, to the core of the issues. And uh, we hope to be able to, to tackle it uh, in the near future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dorit. Um, next, we have uh, Tom Magna from carersworldradio.com. Uh, Tom? Yes, hello. Uh, thank hello. you very much indeed for taking my question. Um, it relates to the message you've been getting across today about essentially advocating business as usual on non-COVID-19 vaccinations. I'm sure parents and carers listening to carersworldradio.com do understand that message. But at the same time, there's the heavy message from government to protect the health service and stay at home. Whilst your, your message is clearly well-intentioned, are you not putting parents and carers in an impossible dilemma? They're going to hear what you're saying and say, yes, I want to do that. 
but in effect they have to demand their government do it. So shouldn't this message be directed to the politicians? Yes, I'm going to pass that question over to Dorit Nitsan, please, Dorit. Yes, uh, we are recommending and we have been recommending all through the way to continue the preventive work that is being done, including immunizations. Immunizations uh, are extremely important, vaccinations are extremely important and we cannot uh, underestimate it. For this, we are working with the, with the policymakers and with the health workers to ensure that the health services are safe for the children and the healthcare workers so that there will be, as we said, a dual prong uh, approach that the, those services will be provided in a, cell, a safe and secured and protected environment. The healthcare workers, the parents, the children should have the, the, a really safe haven where they can get those services as needed. And I'm sure that I heard, I saw that Siddhartha was raising his hand. Uh, Siddhartha, yes, please. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Dori, for, for, for that uh, you know, ground uh, statement. I think, as our regional director has mentioned, we really appreciate all countries making an effort to minimize the risk of COVID-19 transmission during the immunization sessions. As we have heard from several countries in our region, health authorities are doing everything possible to keep immunization services open wherever possible as immunization being one of the essential part of protecting health. But also in that setting, they are trying to make sure that they make adequate measures like adapting the waiting time, calling up the physicians first, initiating mobile vaccination services, or clubbing uh, well baby visits, well vaccination, and keeping the curative services uh, separate from the well baby clinic. So they are making all possible uh, options to 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 ensure that the immunization services and the preventive services are provided. This also demonstrates the highest political commitment from each of our member states to make sure that the immunization as one of the primary healthcare services, preventive services are being made available. I think uh, this is also important for us to remember that immunization is everybody's responsibility. It's a responsibility of our parents, as you have mentioned, but also the same responsibilities has also been demonstrated by, by our highest authorities in each of the countries. Thank you. And uh, also I'll invite the regional director to add a few words. Yes. To recall that the statement today, and this will be out in the, in the public, indeed does address both the governments and the health authorities and the people. So it's an all of government, all of society responsibilities. You are definitely hearing that question. Thank you. Okay, thanks for the question, Tom. And the last question I'm going to go to is uh, Ashley Furlong from Politico. Ashley, uh, you with us? Yes, hi. Uh, hi. A question for the regional director. Um, uh, do you expect to see a second wave of the virus in Europe? And, and if so, do you think it will be worse than the first, given that many countries are now starting to ease lockdown measures? Yes, so thank you. Our position has been that the key issue here is to work what we call interwaves. So if the first wave is gone, 
to prepare, to, that we have bought the time to prepare for a second or a third wave, particularly if there is no vaccine or no equitable access yet to the vaccine or any treatment. So the key issue is to be prepared, whether it is for a second wave or a other outbreak of a other future infectious agents. And again, this will require the collaboration and the understanding of everyone, not at least the population with the summer coming, that everyone has to do its share while moving to a new reality where public health has to have a more prominent place into society, where we will have to have a new normal of this uh, hand hygiene, respiratory hygiene, and being able to have a strong primary health care and public health, because we saw that in the countries with a strong primary health care who could, let's say, have the or keep the infection out of the hospitals, they were in general much more resilient to come through this uh, epidemic. Right, thanks very much, Regional Director. And I'm just going to take one more. We've actually got time for one more. David Williams from the Xinhua News Agency here in Copenhagen. David, can you hear us? <coughs> David, uh, unfortunately, we've got a very bad connection to you. So on that note, given we've run out of time, I'm going to thank you all for joining us today. Um, thanks to the panellists uh, for joining us and for answering the questions. Thanks for the press corps for joining us online. We'll be back the same time next week. And until then, please uh, take care and be safe. Goodbye.